Amen. Well, good morning and happy spring break for those of you who get to enjoy some sort of a spring break, who have kids at home or are in some kind of rhythm that still includes that. And for the rest of you, happy towards the end of first quarter of 2023. And it is a joy to gather together as the people of God and open up the Word of God together. We're in a series called Union, Communion, and Partnership and uh, have been so since uh, the end of January, and we're going through uh, three main passages of Scripture kind of under this banner word of unity for our church for 2023, Uh, John 17, Acts chapter 2, and then Ephesians 4. Uh, We're going to do a summer series on Ephesians 1 through 3 and then unpack uh, Ephesians 4 uh, this fall. And those three passages in, in particular, because the predominant theme in those is one of unity, Uh, Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17, the people of God uh, living in unity in Acts 2, and then God's plan for unity in the body in Ephesians 4. And uh, so that's why we're camping out in those three chapters. And Jimmy has unpacked a bit of uh, chapter 17 and and John going through the first five verses. Uh, Took a little bit of a pivot last week. If you've been kind of tracking with us or what's going on in our national moment, uh, what started at, uh, at Asbury College in Kentucky with the kind of awakening going on there, a chapel service that hasn't ended now for three, uh, three plus weeks. And that's kind of breaking out in different pockets in different places and prayer meetings that have been going on at Baylor uh, night and day. And so we just wanted to pause and honor that, create some space last week to seek the face of God. And, and uh, it was beautiful and had a three-day prayer and fast and opened up the auditorium and many of you came and just prayed and worshiped and sought God's face. And we're going to dive back into John 17 today, but it's not uh, in a different spirit. It's in that same spirit of God, come have your way. Feel free to interrupt our plans and uh, reveal Jesus to us. And uh, I am going to go through John 17 verse by verse for the next three weeks. I will cover some of the material that Jimmy covered in his uh, couple weeks on John 17, but scripture has many facets and we're going to see kind of how it all ties together. And I was talking to my wife this week, and she met with a young mom who was at the service last Sunday and was reflecting with this young mom on what God's doing and these different awakenings or revivals or outpourings, whatever word you want to use. And this young mom was talking about some of the tension she felt of, I want to be where God is. I want to be where God's moving. If God's moving, you know, in this place or that place, but I, I, I can't just up and drive to Asbury. I can't just spend all night in Baylor Chapel. I've got to change diapers and feed my infant. And, and there was this, this disconnect that she was feeling between her kind of lived reality and this, you know, this, um, this idea that God's moving in these places and spaces. And my, my gut is that a lot of us who are in the room, who've been around for a while, we've stuck with this church in particular, this church expression, because of the mission of God, that God is on the move. We hear about uh, Susan talking about Unbound, and there's just powerful things that, that God is doing through the body of Christ to rescue people in, in trapped in human trafficking. And we have missionaries all over the world laboring among the unreached. We have uh, ministries uh, of all different flavors. And, and we love that. We love being a part of this missional community. But at times, the smallness of our lives can create some disillusionment uh, the longer we're around and just kind of going through the grind and having to go home and do the dishes and do laundry and 
go to work and be a faithful employee? And how does my life and the day-to-day functions of my life connect with kind of this bigger mission of God? Maybe you haven't asked that question before, but a lot of you have, and a lot of you have sat in my office asking that question. How does what I do contribute to this mission of God that I hear a lot about? What actually is the mission of God? How do we articulate that? What is the purpose for my life? And I, I believe that how, John, uh, how Jesus prays in John 17 sheds some light on these questions. And so we're going to look at the first eight verses today. We'll look at verses 9 through 19 next week and then 20 through 26 in a, in a few weeks. Uh, and we're going to uh, do something together to read this. So if you'd stand with me, I know you just sat down, but uh, we're going to stand to honor the Word of God. And I'm going to read the first eight verses out loud. You don't have to read along with me, but you do have a part to play. And if this half of the church, my left, your right, kind of right down the middle aisle, if you're on this half of the church, whenever you see the word give or given or gave, it'll be underlined. You're going to say that out loud, okay? So some variation of the word give. This half of the church, whenever you see the word glory or glorified, glorify, some version of glory, you're going to say that out loud. You'll see it underlined. We clear? So we've got what word? Give glory. Some variation of that. Okay, I'll read it out loud, and then you've got your part. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Your son, that the son may. You, since you have. A little late. You got it, though. Him all authority over all flesh to eternal life to all whom you have. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I, you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, me to do. And now, Father, me in your own presence with thee that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, me out of the world. Yours they were, and you them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have, me is from you, for I have them the words that you, you guys got a lot of work to do, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Amen. You may be seated. You did it. Give yourselves a hand. Yeah. I didn't know how that would go in the first service, but it worked out. Now, I know you have no idea what those verses just said because you were uh, focusing on the words that you were going to say. So we're going to break down this passage slowly, verse by verse, uh, John 17, verses 1 through 8. And you've already seen a couple of themes emerge when it comes to studying Scripture, repetitive words, phrases, ideas, are something we need to pay attention to. When you read these verses, those words just jump off the page, right? Uh, Over and over again, this idea of giving, the Father giving to the Son, the Son giving back to the Father, Jesus giving to the people, this exchange of glory, the Father glorifying Jesus, Jesus glorifying the Father through this work that he gave him to do, and so on. And so you may not know much about the context or the original languages, but when you read the Bible and you see repetitive themes and words, pause for a moment and see how it fits into what the text is saying. So verses 1 through 3, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, what words uh, is uh, John talking about? Well, this is the Last Supper. So 
for the past three chapters, four chapters, John 13, 14, 15, 16, has been this, this exchange that's been happening over a meal. Started out with Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then teaching them about serving one another. He teaches on love, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He teaches on the person and work of the Holy Spirit because he's about to go and be with the Father. That he, Jesus, is the vine, that the disciples will be hated by many, but their sorrow will become joy because Jesus has overcome the world. So this is the nature of the teaching, the words that Jesus has been speaking. And I just want to invite you to insert yourself into the story for a moment. You're one of Jesus's disciples in this intimate setting around a table. It's at the end of the meal. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper. He's broken the bread. He's passed the wine. And there's, you know, crumbs and leftovers of the meal, and you're just reclining and enjoying each other's presence. And then all of a sudden, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, it says, and he addresses God as Father. And then he prays this deeply meaningful prayer. And I know Jimmy touched on this, but one of the main revelations that Jesus gives of God is God as Father. He addresses him here multiple times as Father in this passage and all that that entails, the nearness of the Father, that he knows your circumstances and cares, that he provides for us and protects us, that he disciplines us, but that he is present and affirming and in the intricacies of our daily life. He says, Father, the hour has come. And Jesus is sovereign over all events. He's sovereign over his own life. There were uh, other times in his ministry where there was an angry mob and it said his hour hadn't come, so he just passed through them peacefully. But now his hour has come. He is in full control of events. And he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now that's primarily going to come through crucifixion and resurrection, which we'll unpack in a moment. He says, verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here in verse 2, the father gives the son authority over all flesh. Now, that may just roll right off our backs, but imagine for a moment that, you know, you go home from the service this afternoon after lunch, and you're at your house, and you hear a knock at the door, and you open it up, and it's a representative of King Charles of England. And you're invited to England for the next year, and you have, you're being given full authority over the nation. So you can park in any parking spot, you can eat any food that you want, you can walk into any meeting, unlock any door, you can do whatever you want, you can tell every, anybody to do uh, what you want them to do and it will be done. You have a blank check, you can spend whatever money are in the royal coffers, which are extensive. What would you do with that authority? Let's do the thought experiment for a moment. You have all authority. How would you utilize it for one year? Now, I'd like to think that I would you know, think charitably and eradicate hunger, some noble cause like that. But I got a window into my soul last summer when my wife and I took our kids to Washington, D.C., and we're, we're nobody in the political realm, but my grandpa was a World War II hero, and his wife is buried uh, at Arlington National Cemetery. He was actually, he actually just recently passed away. He'll be buried there soon. We'll go up, and it'll be the full military honors and everything else. But because of that, our family has a pass 
to drive into Arlington National Cemetery. Now, when you go there, if you've been there before, you know this, but when you go to Arlington Cemetery, it's this big grand boulevard um, as you drive up to the cemetery, and there are a couple of checkpoints, military checkpoints, because there's a, a, for, a base, a military base uh, connected to Arlington Cemetery. And at the second checkpoint, everybody turns left to go into the visitor parking and the buses, everything else goes there, and then they, you walk the grounds. But if you have a pass, they raise the bar and you get to drive into Arlington National Cemetery and then look down on all these lower persons walking around uh, the cemetery. And, and I have to say, it feels good to flash the badge and for the bar to go up and to drive around. And some people, you see some people kind of craning their necks when you drive by. It's like, who is that? Until they see it's a 2013 Honda Odyssey uh, with four kids screaming in the back seat and our front right panels dented from where we hit a deer last year. And, and it's nobody special after all. But for a moment, it feels good to be distinct, to be separate from all of these lower mortals. Uh, these lower persons. Now, the thought never occurred to me when we got to the second checkpoint to turn left and to park in the visitor parking with everybody else and to walk with everybody else. But Jesus has all authority. He has the badge to get in any meeting, to do whatever he wants. What does he do with it? And to connect it to this metaphor, he goes to England for a year. He's homeless. He works with the poor. The, the nobodies. He distributes the grace of God. He teaches the word of the Father. He manifests the way of the Father and lives in relative obscurity, and then he dies. And that's a profound thought that comes out right here in the very beginning of Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17. He says, you've given him authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He says, this is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We will not know life apart from connection with the Father. And Jesus is saying, you gave me authority, that's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to manifest the Father to these people because therein lies life. And I will live and die to that effect. He goes on, verses 4 through 6, he says, I glorified you on earth, not himself, though we will talk about the Trinity in a couple weeks. In his divinity, he is glorified, but in his humanity, he humbled himself. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So you have a very clear theme in these verses where the Father has given Jesus a task. He has given him authority to accomplish that task. And Jesus executes that task. In verse 5, it says that he glorifies. He's asking the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now that will come specifically through crucifixion and resurrection. That's what's on the other end of this prayer. Jesus knows that just in a short time, that's what's going to happen to him. He'll pray in the Garden of Gethsemane for the grace to endure, to drink the cup that the Father gives him to drink. But he's thinking beyond that to being resurrected and, and attaining again the glory that he shared with the Father before the world began. Well, what is that glory? And I know Jimmy spent some time on this. Jimmy defined it as God's splendor, 
his brilliance, his authority, and the manifestation of his perfection. But I'd like to add to that definition this morning based on the context of this prayer that God's eternal glory is also his dominion, his holiness, and his Trinitarian unity. And next week, we'll look specifically at his holiness, and then the week after that, we'll look at this this idea of oneness that comes up over and over, unity that existed in the Godhead and now among the church with God. But this morning, I want to look at this idea of dominion, Jesus asking, God, restore the glory to me I had with you before the foundation of the world, which part of that we see in this text is this idea of dominion. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by that word? It's not a word we use a ton in church vernacular. We're going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and it's not an Antioch sermon unless we reference Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are are coexisting together in perfect union. Out of that perfection of that relationship, God creates the heavens and the earth, and we see his creative power displayed all throughout Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we see that he has dominion over it. Everything that's created, all the glory and beauty of creation. Next time you go out you know, and, and can see the night sky, just marvel at God's creation or drive through the mountains. I have a lot of friends skiing this week. And every time we go to the mountains, it's just an awe-inspiring sense of God's glory. And this is what God is, is rolling out through Genesis 1 and 2. And he's exercising dominion over it. He is the potter. We are the clay Paul would say to the scoffer in Romans 9 and 10, what right does the clay have to say back to the potter, why have you made me thus? It's not a popular message today, but God has all authority, all dominion. He is sovereign over his creation. But what does he do with that dominion, right? We just talked about what did Jesus do with his dominion, his authority that was granted to him. What does God do with his dominion in Genesis chapter 1? Well, he brings order out of chaos. He creates beauty and fruitfulness. Then right there in verse 26, we see the generosity of his spirit in that he shares dominion with mankind who he's just created. An astonishing thought that the sovereign God of the universe would include mankind in the stewardship of his dominion. But we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us... Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have, what? Dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have what? Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And right here in this passage, we get our, uh, a sermon ser- <clears throat> pardon me. our sermon series, Union, Communion, and Fellowship. God makes mankind in his own image, uh, in that we are communicative, we are rational, we are relatable creatures who can share fellowship with God in a way that's unique among all of God's creations, in a way that a starfish or a horse or a fungus can't enjoy fellowship with the Father, we have the unique capacity to do so. You also see the communion among the people he creates, that he creates male and female. He creates mankind in community, not just a a single individual. But we also see partnership with God in his mission, 
God extending his dominion to uh, inviting Adam and Eve to co-create with him in this passage. And the words that are used are these words dominion and subdue, have dominion over the earth, subdue it. Now, I don't know about you, when I first started studying this passage, those words rub me the wrong way. They tend to have a negative connotation uh, when we hear dominion or subdue. I think of the 20th century with Hitler or Pol Pot or Mussolini or one of these dictators subduing a people through force or usurping power and pillaging a people, oppressing them. It's what it means to have dominion over them or to subdue them. But that's not at all what God had in mind when he commissioned Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. And we know that because in Genesis 2, we see the tasks that God gives Adam and Eve to do, and he illustrates what he means by dominion. In chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God put man in a what? In a garden to work it and to keep it. I've got a, a picture of a garden we can throw up on the screen. And it's a beautiful thing, right? You just kind of, you can kind of let down when you see that picture. It's like, I would love to be there unless you have allergies. And then that's the last place on the planet that you would want to be. But what's the gardener's goal? Like, do we have any gardeners in the room? That's okay if you're like a quasi-gardener like we are. We have a couple of raised bed gardens in the backyard, and we, we do a very poor job of, of maximizing those. But what's the gardener's goal? What is it? Right, fruit. I heard somebody say it. Fruitfulness, right? You want to bring about maximum fruitfulness from whatever plot of land. But what else? There's a second goal as well. A lot of murmuring. Beauty. I heard it. Thank you. There's, and there's other goals too, but I'm, uh, there's a leading question. Right, so fruitfulness. Beauty, right? That's just a beautiful picture. Uh, maybe nothing uh, productive about the garden behind me other than it's just beautiful to be a part of and beautiful to look at. Uh, but of course, there's fruitfulness involved as well. And the gardener's goal, their efforts are expended to bring about maximum beauty and fruitfulness. And it's hard work, right? You have to pull weeds. You have to tend, if you're really serious, tend the pH balance of the soil, make sure it has the appropriate amount of water, and nutrition, and light, and shade, and temperature, and so on. And this is the kind of dominion that God is commissioning Adam and Eve to have. I want you to expend your energies to bring about maximum beauty and fruitfulness, to bring order out of chaos. Now look at verse 6 again in John 17. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And the imagery here, I think, applies, the metaphor. It's almost as if God gave Jesus a garden to tend, to steward. The Father gave him these people, and he was to, um, to develop them, to steward their lives, to bring about maximum beauty and fruitfulness, to bring order out of chaos. And Jesus here is saying, this is what I have done. I have stewarded their lives to bring about beauty and fruitfulness. And I think this is some of what Jesus is referring to when he's saying, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory we shared together before the beginning of the world. This idea of dominion, that Jesus exercised dominion over creation with the Father in the beginning and then manifests that dominion with his disciples through his lifestyle and the way that he stewarded the authority 
over the, the time and space and places and people that, G, that God had given to him to steward. Adam and Eve were created in this same image. They had this original mandate to bring about order out of chaos, to cultivate the earth, to bring about uh, fruitfulness and beauty. But they were just two people. And so the father said, have babies, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I want the whole earth to be reflective of this type of caretaking dominion that is selfless and brings about beauty and fruitfulness. And so they did. Of course, sin corrupted that plan, and that's the process of redemption, the outworking of it. But this was the original mandate, and that comes all the way down to us, to where there would be people filling the earth who have an effective range of the will, which is what Dallas Willard calls this kind of authority, where we have influence over specific people, over specific places, be that our families, our workplaces, and so on. Not influence over in order uh, to use them for my purposes, but influence under to develop and create the glory of God, the image of God in these spaces and places. You guys following me so far? So I've got a, a graphic here that's going to come up on the screen. This is representative of maybe what our garden could look like or how to conceive of our garden, the garden of our lives, the stewardship of what God has given to each one of us. Now, it's going to look different person to person, uh, different types of people, different types of places and spaces and endeavors and activities. You see Jesus right in the center of our garden. That's for the believer, that that relationship is the first one that we are cultivating We've got, you know, in my case, my relationship with my wife, Steph, of 17 years. And uh, Paul even uses a lot of this language in Ephesians 5 when he's talking to husbands and wives about caretaking, nourishing, cherishing uh, our spouses, this kind of gardening language. I have my four boys who we are raising, and they are uh, a part of the, the, the garden that God has stewarded to me. To, to tend to, and so on. We have our hobbies and our friends, roommates, extended families, and so on. Uh, now, we also have things outside of our garden that we have no control uh, or meaningful control or influence over. And a uh, kind of a question for reflection would be, how much time and energy do we spend on things outside of our garden that saps our energy that we could be expending to tend to the things that God has actually given us to tend to, one point of reflection. Uh, or we are discontent with the boundaries of our garden, and we wish it included the boundaries of that person's garden uh, who's next to me. Or we're trying to push out the boundaries of the garden prematurely. And yes, God will call us to expand our boundaries. You see that with Susan in the different places, Unbound is extending around the world, but at God's leadership and for God's purposes. Now, a discipleship school moment here. Uh, I used to direct the school for many years, so if you've heard me preach before, often we take a pause. I want you to pause here for a moment. I want you to take 30 seconds, reflect, turn to somebody. What is one thing that's standing out to you so far? You've got 30 seconds. What's one thing standing out to you so far? Ready, go. Take 10 more seconds. 
All right. What you see when you read the scriptures is a story of person after person who uses their authority to advance their own name, their own cause. In Genesis 11, you see people gathering in the plain of Shinar. And it says, then they said, uh, Genesis 11, uh, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for who? Ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12, the psalmist reflecting on these types of thoughts. He says, For he, mankind, sees that even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called their names, their lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Now contrast this with how Jesus understood his mission. Again, John 17, verse 6. I have manifested whose name? Your name, the Father's name to the people. Jesus did not seek his own glory, though he had all authority to do so. We even see the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, the third temptation to receive all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Jesus said, no, 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 we will worship the Father alone. And we get to Hebrews 1, verse 3, that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What did Jesus endeavor to do? He endeavored to live among the people that God gave him, the garden that God had stewarded him, in such a way that they saw the Father in everything that he did. His speech, his activities, his choices, his decisions, everything was a reflection of the Father. He'll wrap up this section in verses 7 and 8. He says, Now they know, these people know, that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So what did Jesus actually give them? Well, he says here he gave the words of the Father. In verse 6, he gave the name of the Father. He said, I've manifested your name to the people. A name was not just like what God would put on a name tag. Name at that time represented all of you, your full nature, your reputation, your character, and so on. And Jesus is saying, this is what I have endeavored to give the people, your word, your name, your nature, your character. This is how Jesus stewarded the garden that God gave him to steward. This is how he exercised dominion. So this is my summary of Jesus's mission on the earth, just from these eight verses. And you could say a lot more about Jesus's mission. But what, from what he reveals in this passage, his mission was to give the Father glory by using the authority given to him to speak the Father's word and to live the Father's way among those the Father gave to him, his garden that was stewarded to him. And we'll talk more about the Father's way in subsequent weeks, how we can live the Father's way among the people God gives us, talking about holiness and unity and so on. But all of us, in a similar way, have been given a realm of authority, a garden, a span of dominion over which we have some sort of influence. And the question is, how will we steward the authority that God has been given to us? To me, this is where the idea of the big picture of God's mission intersects with the smallness and mundanity of our lives. That our lives are a collection of 
speech, of decisions in the, in the very mundane corners of our lives, how we conduct ourselves throughout the day as stay-at-home moms, as nurses, as doctors, and teachers, and businessmen and women, and coaches, and board members, how we conduct ourselves in those spaces is the litmus test of our understanding of the mission of God for our lives. The call to bring about order out of chaos, beauty and fruitfulness, even in the mundane aspects of life, to show the world who the Father is through the the words that we speak and how we live. Again, in my case, that's uh, my wife and my kids, uh, uh, preeminently. I'm with them the most of, uh, of any time that I spend around any other people. Uh, this morning, that's you. You are my garden. I am endeavoring to disseminate the Word of God in such a way as to build up, to bring order out of chaos, to bring about fruitfulness and beauty in your lives. And I could talk about the other places and spaces that I spend my time. But I was thinking yesterday, I was at the Baylor game against Iowa State, a uh, difficult one to, to sit through. Uh, nevertheless, I was with a couple of my boys, and there was a gentleman behind us a few rows, and he was uh, upset uh, throughout the majority of the game. Uh, he was clearly a Baylor fan, but he was just constantly berating the Baylor players and frustrated at their inability to make a shot, frustrated at the coach's decisions, and cursing. And, and my, you know, one of my boys was like, Daddy, he keeps saying the S word. I was like, I know. just It's, it's welcome to the world of sports. And... And, and at one point, you know, some, there was like a little chant going on, and, and it was negative in nature, and he was like, can we say that? I was like, hey, buddy, here's the deal. When we come to a sporting event, we cheer our team on, and, uh, and we don't critique. We're not going to critique the ref's call. We're not going to critique the other team. We're not going to tear anybody down. And, and so we, you know, we cheered. We had fun, even though it was a, it was a loss. And the team was playing hard on the court. And, and I, was, I was prepping for this message. It was on my mind. And as, uh, as we were sitting there, and I was thinking about, God, how does me sitting here at this Baylor game connect with your mission? And I felt like the Lord said that that was my glory when you just coached your son and how to conduct yourself at a sporting event. That was my glory. Thank you. <laughs> I don't have a ton of those moments, so I'll receive that, uh, I'll receive that applause. Because many times I do not reflect the glory of the Father to my kids, and then it's incumbent upon me to identify the ways that I have uh, lived incommensurately with the way of the Father. Hey, it was not like Jesus when I just raised my voice or did this or that. But we are reflecting the nature of the Father to uh, those that God has stewarded to us. You know, I I could just go down the row. It's just an amazing church to be a part of. Uh, so many people who are windows into the nature of the Father in so many nooks and crannies of our city and our nation and the world. And I could have picked any hundreds of you, but I just a couple people came to mind immediately. I, don't, I think Penny was here. Is Penny Allison here somewhere? Probably right in front of me. Hi, and Charlie right next to her. And for those, those of you who know Penny and Charlie, I mean, the glory of God is on this family. And um, I asked Penny's permission to, to share just a little bit. And, um, there have been some health complications for Charlie throughout his life. And, and uh, I know Penny, uh, for many years, would sleep in a recliner so she could be ready to take care of Charlie when he was younger. And I, I just see the portrait of the glory of God in that hidden space 
not a huge stage and a platform, but one person laying down her life, and not just Penny, but her late husband, laying down their lives for their son. And now Charlie bears the glory of God. He works on our facility staff. And so many times I see him uh, going, what seems to me to be going out of his way to clean up our grounds, to pay attention to the, the little details of making this space uh, uh, comfortable and safe uh, to come and to worship God. And Charlie, you are demonstrating the glory of God for how you're stewarding what God has given to you. And I'm so thankful for people who take their calling seriously and aren't trying to reach outside of the boundaries that God has stewarded to them, but see the opportunity to tend the spaces, places, and people that God have given to them. We are thankful for you guys and so many others just like you. So the question is, what will God, what will you do with the authority that God has given to you? How will you steward the, the places and spaces that God has given to you to steward while on this earth? Will you seek to make a name for yourself? It's very tempting to do. But leave a monument to ourselves. And by the way, uh, Jesus did leave a monument to himself, and it is identified as what? Well, the, hey, that's actually even a better, a better answer, the church. But what I was thinking of the cross, the symbol, his monument is a symbol of self-sacrifice. If there was a monument to depict the work of his life. And we are his legacy. We are his monument uh, to this gentleman's point. Are we discontented trying to prematurely stretch out our boundaries, trying to live somebody else's life, tend to somebody else's garden? Are we distracted? Are we coping with the pain of life by spending time outside of the, the very space where we can actually make a difference? How we choose to steward what God has given us will be the answer to whether we fulfill the mission and the call of God on our lives, which I believe is to give the Father glory for, through how we live our life. If you're going to lunch or on the car ride home, does your purpose in life align with Jesus's vision for his life? If we are Christ followers, Christians, what is the end goal? Can we pray like Jesus in John 17, verse 4, where he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. If we knew we had just days left to live, as Jesus did at that time, could we say that with confidence? Man, I had a job. I have done it. I have glorified the Father. I have done the work that I was purposed to do. Is the purpose for my life in alignment with the vision Jesus had for his life, his understanding of his mission. You know, we are in a, a moment of awakening nationally. I, I pray it's not just kind of a three-week thing. I pray that it's, this is ongoing and continues to spread where God is sovereignly opening eyes to his glory and what he's doing around the world. And, and awakening's beautiful. It's where the Holy Spirit um, shows us the glory of the Father, and it's accompanied by worship and prayer, these extended times of worship and repentance and reconciliation. Uh, this is wordplay a little bit, but if, a, if that's awakening, awakening it tends to be kind of a one-time outpouring of God's Spirit. Revival, then, is living that out. It's sustaining that awakening by applying it to our lived reality over time. Can we sustain that awakening, that outpouring of God's Spirit through the stewardship of our commitments, our responsibilities, 
again, the mundane corners and crevices of our lives. And my prayer is that we would live in such a way that we could pray like Jesus at the end of our lives. I glorified you on earth. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let it be in Jesus' name. And why don't you stand with me as we close our time together.